Hey, this is Mohal Joshi from Los Angeles, California. I follow Indian foreign policy and defense with a special focus on Asia. You can follow me on Twitter at Mohal Joshi. Hey, this is Kishore Narayan from Bengaluru in India. I am an international relations expert specializing in global security, conflict resolution, and international negotiation. My focus areas include peace building and digital diplomacy. You can find me on Twitter at Veggie Diplomat. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of India Rising Strategic Affairs Conversations with Mohal and Kishore after a brief hiatus. We are excited to be back and eager to talk about a variety of new topics. Before we begin our episode, our hearts and prayers are with the Ukrainian people who are facing a massive Russian onslaught. The destruction being witnessed now speaks of a great humanitarian tragedy that Ukraine can ill afford at this critical hour. Today, obviously, we are going to look at the most burning issue in geopolitics right now, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, uh, we will be jumping back and forth on uh, lots of issues uh, pertaining to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And what we plan to do right away is to look at the Indian abstention in the United Nations. Uh, so once the Russian onslaught started, there was a flurry of activity both in Europe and other world capitals. The United Nations promptly convened and voted to condemn the Russian actions. In fact, ambassadors from various European nations and the Ukrainian ambassador to India, uh, Mr. Igor Polilka, tried to generate support for Ukraine in the corridors of power in New Delhi. However, India abstained during both the resolutions, one in the Security Council and one in the General Assembly, placing them together uh, with China. India's ambassador to the United Nations, uh, Mr. Tirumurthy, issued a clarification after it abstained, but it actually looked like an explainer as to why it was support it was supposed to vote in favor of Ukraine. So uh, things did not add up uh, from an Indian perspective, but we'll look uh, again deeply into the dichotomy that India faces. But now we'll switch back to uh, the Russian uh, gamble in the Donbass region. <clears throat> now we all know that there was a military buildup for months across the Ukrainian border, and there were also military exercises with the Belarusian armed forces. Uh, in fact, uh, the French president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, traveled to Moscow and tried to get some kind of concessions from Putin. And uh, there was a decoy when Putin announced a pullback of the troops and also published uh, some videos and pictures. Uh, however, uh, we all know that it was a decoy. Now, uh, there is an agreement called the Minsk Agreement of 2014, which had actually given a temporary retrieve for Kiev in controlling the two rebel regions in the Donbass region. Uh, the two regions are Luhansk and Donetsk. But since then, approximately about 14,000 people have lost their lives to the fighting in the greater Donbass region. This time around, Putin went ahead 
and exercise the very uh, less risky option of recognizing the two autonomous regions as sovereign republics. So, uh, Mohal, uh, we, when, when Russia was uh, gambling on uh, uh, declaring these two republics as sovereign, it kind of um, mirrored a similar operation that Russia had performed over the Georgian territory in uh, late 2008. Uh, do you want to shed light on that? Yeah, so in 2008, uh, in Georgia, which is another of the former Soviet republics, uh, during the Bucharest summit of the NATO, they had basically indicated that they would welcome someday like uh, Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. Now, while Georgia and Ukraine were happy at this outcome, uh, Russia was not too pleased. Now, using the pretext of Georgian forces targeting pro-Russian province of South Ossetia, that's a province on the border of Russia and um, uh, Georgia, Russia marched in, in wanting not only to secure South Ossetia, but also pushed further into throw back the Georgian troops, which was directed by their then president, uh, Mikhail uh, Sakasli, uh, sorry, I am can't get the spelling right. So the Georgian army succumbed in quick time and retreated towards their capital. Now the Russian army marched forward to seize the capital, but the state just outside the capital for a bit. Back then, the French uh, convinced in both the parties to hastily to hastily exit ceasefire. While Putin wanted uh, uh, Mikhail out, the Bush administration, with help of current President Joe Biden, arranged a financial rescue package. Eventually, there was a ceasefire between Georgia and Russia, and uh, Putin relented on his demands. The president Sarkozy remained in power until he was voted out of office in 2012, eventually leading to a peaceful transfer of power. Now, the Georgian war, like it would be like what 14 years ago, uh, showcased like Putin's willingness to start a war to force a country to stay within the so-called Russian sphere of influence. He relented when he was assured that Georgia wouldn't be joining NATO. Similarly, Putin annexed Crimea when a pro-Russian president was uh, uh, thrown out of office in Ukraine during the Euromedan protest in 2014. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, what we see from the Georgian example is Putin is willing to uh, throw his might and directly attack the neighbor and try to get assurances uh, that the country would not join NATO and also in the process break that country into smaller pieces and whatever autonomous regions uh, Putin can grab hold of they would be declared as sovereign republics and that is quite similar to what Putin has done even now. Okay so uh, we will now look at the actual invasion uh, that Putin ordered into the heart of Ukraine. In fact, uh, last year in July 2021, uh, Putin published a strange uh, pseudo-historical essay titled On the Historic Unity of Russians and Ukrainians. Uh, this uh, essentially saying that the independence of Ukraine is a historical anomaly. Now in February, just before the planned special military operation, that uh, Putin wants to call it, 
put in made a speech which was closely watched by everyone around the world. In that speech, he spoke about the historical wrongs of how Crimea was given away to Ukraine by the Soviet uh, President Nikita Khrushchev in 1954. He also said that Ukraine had no history of legitimate statehood. He added that Ukraine is not just a neighboring country for us, it is an inalienable part of our own history, culture, and spiritual space. And he warned, telling, history is destiny and Ukraine will never get away from Russia. And immediately after that, he followed with a th three-pronged attack one from the north, one from the east, and one from south. And he called it as uh, the special military operation intended for demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine. But the question remained, why did Putin attack now? What triggered now? Uh, what triggered the attack now? And uh, it's kind of... Uh, quite obvious that Putin fundamentally misread the situation. But he saw this as a great opportunity. Why? Because he, he considered that the American administration had lost quite a bit of credibility after Afghanistan and had been signaling little interest in opposing him in Ukraine. He saw a new government in Germany uh, under uh, Chancellor uh, um, the new the new chancellor, who who was both untested, and he he comes from the Social Democratic Party, which is more left wing of among the major German parties, and historically wanted good uh, uh, German Russian relations. He also saw that China was feeling stronger uh, and also was more opposed to the United States of America. So uh, this is about the kind of timing and uh, whether or not Putin misread the situation. But then why attack at all? Why not find a diplomatic way out? Mohan, you want to talk about that? Yeah, so um, recently, like uh, Dr. Paul Prost, um, a professor of, in, uh, of political science at the University of Chicago and a non-resident fellow on the Chicago Council of Global Affairs has argued that uh, what has happened here is like more from a lens of offensive realism. Basically, it mm -hmm. says that any country, especially like great powers, it always wants to dominate its region and make sure that no other country dominates this region. Now, this offensive realism, I mean, we also saw it in the past where uh, in the 1800s, I believe like there was a Monroe Doctrine where then uh, where it dictated that the US wanted to have the Americas, the North and the South America as its own sphere of influence and didn't want anyone to uh, interfere there. So the offensive realism is like basically was a way for Russia to safeguard their own interests in their neighborhood. Now, there were two choices and uh, basically what happened is uh, either like, we tell like Ukraine to accept neutrality because otherwise the Russians are going to invade and we are not fighting. This is what like Henry Kissinger proposed back as far back, I think it is 2014, 
so the the goal is either you have to arm the ukraine sufficiently that they can deter the russians or like you know uh fight on their behalf which is not happening i think like many american presidents uh have a role on where uh the situation is evolved today obviously russia bears the blame for starting the military conflict there is no doubt about it but i think the thing started to roll from the bucharest summit in 2008 where ukraine was first promised like a nato membership down the road now at that time basically there was under george bush but also like under uh, president obama they didn't sell a lot of weapons to ukraine to arm itself and uh, also we saw that in syria like president obama had put a, a sort of a red line which uh, which they asked their opponents to not cross which they did and they didn't do anything you know and then like uh, neil ferguson like recently said that the and i quote the consequences of this are far reaching indeed first in first of all in the administration's laxity to avoid even uh, higher inflation they are de desperately trying to resuscitate the iran nuclear deal and get the iranian oil back in the world market and in the process making all kinds of concessions that will come back to haunt them so this is the place where to now to isolate russia they are trying to reach out to uh, ukraine uh, sorry they are trying to reach out to iran to uh, balance the energy market but this is not going to uh, end well mm -hmm. kishor okay great um okay so once russia invaded and uh, ukraine was kind of uh, left all alone uh, the western world including the us uh, they kind of uh, acted hastily and started uh, imposing sanctions and that is what we're going to look at next and uh, eu the european union the us and its major allies like japan south korea almost everybody started imposing economic sanctions on russia the biggest move as everybody knows by now was to block russian ability to use the swift banking system reportedly two thirds of russian central bank reserves have been frozen which is quite a lot because russia um, by latest count had around 680 billion dollars and if two thirds of it is frozen that would easily be around say um, around around say 4420 billion dollars and that's quite a bit of money now along with that uh, the russian flights were barred from entering the european airspace and uh, foreign exchange as we already pointed out uh, that were that were stored in various vaults around the world were frozen and uh, this started escalating and started expanding to newer dimensions sporting bodies for instance started imposing their own sanctions the uefa champions league final was pushed out of st petersburg uh, which was where it was planned to be held now russian athletes in various sports like tennis paralympics were were uh, told that uh, you can play but without your national identities giant tech corporations like apple microsoft uh, announced that they won't be selling their new line of products in russia moreover apple joined uh, mastercard and visa in stopping their apple pay services within russia 
and quickly after that even Google uh, followed suit by suspending their Google Pay services. Surely the West kept scaring Putin uh, prior to the attack that Russia will face never seen before sanctions if it was to invade Ukraine. So Putin was kind of aware of the impact of sanctions uh, on Russia and he to an extent he would have been prepared to soften the blow but the but the uh, enormity of the sanctions that were imposed would have surely uh, taken Putin off guard. Uh, however apart from sanctions Putin also was made to contend with condemnation pretty much from every corner of the world including his own backyard Hungary, Czech Republic, Kazakhstan all condemned, all either condemned Russia's action or refused uh, Russia's request for troops to attack Ukraine. Now as things unfold, there are other neighbors like Finland, Sweden who are now finding new purpose in trying to join NATO as a direct response to Russian bullying tactics. For starters, Sweden has now announced that it is upping its defense budget right away. Now, uh, Bush had pointed this out to Gerhard Schroeder, the then German Chancellor in 2002. He had informed that getting off nuclear power, uh, 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 that Germany getting off nuclear power meant becoming dependent on Russia for um, natural gas and uh, oil. However, Gerhard Schroeder, in all his wisdom back then, didn't seem to be so bothered about it. However, now uh, the Germans have abandoned 40 years of outreach to Russia, and uh, their hallmark through, uh, which was their hallmark through uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel's tenure. The current Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, has now declared a doubling of the German defense budget and, uh, and also his willingness to ship weapons to Ukraine. So this is about the Western world and their uh, imposition of sanctions and threats and so on and so forth. Uh, Mohal, I want you to talk about the China angle also uh, and how China has been reacting to all this. Yeah, so China, I mean, like it's, it's been growing closer to Russia uh, due to both their antagonism against United States, like which is their primary rival. Now, China, even though it's like a valuable friend, it wasn't very supportive of Russian actions in on the diplomatic front. On the Security Council, vote, China abstained uh, surprisingly and got its media to take an anti-Russia stand. China, on the financial side, will want to help Russia so that it doesn't collapse financially. It doesn't require a, a balancing factor against united states it doesn't want to be isolated it is the sole power who is trying to fight against the united states um already like russian banks have been rushing to establish credit cards with china chinese financial institutions uh because they have been frozen out of the western land banking system including the swift mm-hmm. um now antara goshal singh a fellow at the strategic studies program at observer research foundation uh, wrote in, uh, in an article that, and I quote, China's strategy in the ongoing Ukraine crisis, as noted by some Chinese commentators, is actually to talk less and, sorry, talk more and do less, 
and strike a fine balance between supporting Russia while also ensuring that its support for Russia does not provoke the US and the EU too much. Chinese, China's official response so far encourages dialogue and negotiation between all parties while also more or less sticking to the Russian position in the conflict very much alludes to this strategy. Meanwhile, in China is watching this fiasco and saying to himself, well, if the most I have to fear is set of sanctions, then I then if I decide to take control of Taiwan, uh, I am in good shape. Hmm. Okay, sure. so, so things are panning out pretty much well for China. Uh, Russia is suffering all the bad name. Russia is suffering the, mm-hmm. the heft of the uh, economic sanctions. And China actually getting a, a ring-hired view of the maximum damage that can ever happen. Yeah, and then and, since and the, China since, is in a far better shape than uh, Russia. Yeah, I mean, since the COVID pandemic, there has been growing anger against China. I mean, also in the last four years, like with the trade sanctions and stuff, like Trump um, upping the ante against China, okay. that was the main bad actor. But now all that is lost. Now Russia takes center stage as enemy number one in the West. So China can sort of, uh, it's better for them in theory because they can now glide under the radar in terms of the threat. Hmm, hmm, great. Okay. So uh, we have now kind of looked at the present and uh, how things have panned out say, in the past month, month and a half. But uh, we also need to go back uh, and look at how the crisis evolved uh, right from the very beginning. So, Mohal, you want to uh, give us a historical uh, drawdown on the entire crisis? Yeah, I mean, to, as I always say, like to understand these complex geopolitical situations, it's always good to take a step back in history to understand how this situation is like that we are in today. I mean, there is no one easy answer to it. I know like many on the, especially on social media, a lot of the pro-Russian people have been arguing, oh, it was a NATO expansion. Like it's like, uh, I think, pro- uh, theory proposed by John Mersheimer. And while on the West, the, they say, oh, it's nothing to do with NATO expansion, which was kind of benign in their thought. And they said, this is all to do. It's completely Russia's fault. And Putin is a megalomaniac who wants to like recreate the Russian empire. Mm. I mean, the truth, as in many times, it's somewhere in between. I mean, both sides do have a point. But let's just go step by step, like, to how we arrived at the situation today. So basically, let's go start with NATO. So post-World War II, the Northern, the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance was a military alliance of 20, uh, I mean, at that time was uh, started out with, uh, I believe like 12 members, if I'm not right or wrong, uh, in 1949. And then later on, they started adding members as the Cold War went on. So in 1952, uh, they added Greece and Turkey in West Germany was added in 1955 and Spain in 1982 once they, they got rid of the dictator Franco. So that was the expansion up to the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall. Now with the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, the question opened up like whether NATO was going to stay put or like expand eastwards. Now Putin, I mean, in many times has claimed over the past few years that uh that's the then secretary of state james baker uh had a famous line said not one inch eastward uh an assurance regarding the nato expansion in his meeting with uh soviet leader mikhail gorbachev in february 1990. now this was part of a question of when the unification of germany was on the table the question was what happens to the east germany 
because there would be like Soviet soldiers stationed back then in the uh, early 90s. So James Baker like verbally, uh, uh, I mean, he claims that the not an inch eastward, it was a verbal assurance and it never meant that they NATO would never expand. Well, the Russians same no, it was, I mean, the truth is there is no return agreement. So even if there was a verbal assurance, I mean, there is no uh, incentive for the uh, Americans to say like, hey, you know what, like, uh, I mean, there's no ironclad guarantees basically uh, as like Mr. Baker put in for uh, NATO's uh, forces to go eastward. So the return agreement, what they did was just for uh, related to Germany, there's nothing to what ha happened. Now, after that, then in 1991, the Berlin Wall falls, the Russia disintegrates into those uh, the 16 uh, different uh, nations. And uh, the Warsaw Pact is dissolved because there's no longer a Soviet Union. So there is a no um, uh, de facto, like, you know, uh, second superpower to uh, bind the Warsaw Pact together. Now, what happens next was uh, interesting. So one of the, in 1993, uh, NATO was contemplating like admitting Poland, Hungary and the Czech Republic. So he proposed in an op-ed in Los Angeles time that the alliance should consider a member of Russia, which is Russia itself, you know, like, so Baker wrote back then, like an echo for our relations with Russia, it cannot, it, sorry, it can both encourage reform and hedge our bets against a return to authoritarianism and expansionism. Now, mind you, like this is before the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Warsaw Pact. So it wasn't like, I mean, some people, I mean, it might sound outlandish today, but like they were proposed that why not you include Russia in a pro-European, like, I mean, a seamless integration, but I guess that never came to be. And uh, it fell by the wayside that like they could even possibly not only incorporate the eastern european countries but also russia itself kishore okay okay so uh, basically the idea uh, proposed by baker was uh, to encourage the nascent democracy that was uh, blossoming in russia itself and try to forever pull russia into the ambit of the western democracy I think that I think that was a revolutionary idea back then, but somehow obviously it never it never uh, fructified. Anyway, so uh, we'll move on. We'll keep uh, looking at the history again, and we'll also have to look at how NATO expanded during the 1990s and uh, early 2000s. Uh, 1990 June, during a session of the North Atlantic Council, the ministers of foreign affairs of NATO member states. They extended an invitation to the Warsaw Pact countries to cooperate in the spirit of freedom, democracy, and justice. So what happens? Uh, within a year, in February 1991, Poland, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia, the most advanced countries in terms of implementing the reforms, they began to collaborate on European integration. And by December of the same year, December 1991, the North Atlantic Cooperation Council, NACC, was established. The members of the newly established Commonwealth of Independent States were also invited to join this forum. The NACC was expected to be a body allowing for cooperation on security issues between NATO 
and non-NATO countries. And by 2004, uh, which was around 13 years after the disintegration of the Soviet Union, the Baltic nations of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, uh, along with Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia, they kind of joined uh, NATO. So this was in 2004. And uh, in fact, the story of the Baltic nations joining NATO is quite interesting. What set the breakaway Baltic apart from other former Soviet republics is that shortly after regaining independence, they were clear-eyed regarding their geopolitical predicament. They accurately assessed that the 1990s constituted a rare historical irregularity, a window of opportunity that would not last forever. Former Latvian president, Vaira Fike Freiberger, who shepherded Latvia through the membership process, attests that one of the principal lessons for small, na for small nations is that they always ought to stay vigilant and when cracks in the march of history occur, immediately try to seize such moments. The Baltic leaders recognized that because of the relative weakness of Russia and the high watermark moment of American power, they were granted an unusual degree of political maneuvering. They acted without hesitation before Moscow clawed its way back into a stronger position. And now the Baltics were also eager to send their troops to uh, UN missions as well as contribute to costly NATO operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. Estonia, for example, participated in the Afghanistan mission without any national caveat. And they suffered one of the highest ratios of deaths per capita of any of the allied countries. Involvement in American-led interventions was seen as an effective way to edge closer to NATO membership. So it was like the Baltics not only joined as quickly as they could while the Russians were uh, more, more focused inward, uh, the Baltic, Baltic nations were also very, very eager to prove themselves even after becoming NATO members. So they would, they would be the first to send soldiers, they would, they would take maximum uh, damage, uh, they would lose more soldiers, so on and so forth, and uh, it kind of uh, ended up becoming uh, as if their integration was complete and foolproof. Now, yeah, I think, uh, sorry, go, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, I was done talking about the Baltic nations. I just wanted to switch over yeah. to Ukraine, but you can... Yeah, so I wanted to add a little on the Baltics. So interestingly, the, back then, Denmark led a peacekeeping battalion they created with the, uh, the uh, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. Mm -hmm. So these countries, as you remember, post-World War II, I mean, sorry, between World War I and World War II, they, all, they were all independent nations. So, but unfortunately, what happened is post-World War II, they came in the, uh, they were taken over by, uh, integrated into the then Soviet Union. So they saw a unique, as I said, like unique time in history where Soviet Union was not uh, strong. So this was their opportunity to break away again and become independent like they were between 1918 and 1945 in the interwar years. Mm. So they saw, and then they were eager to do whatever. I mean, interestingly, 
if you read the history behind it, like Latvia, like also signed a letter that, hey, we want to join the NATO, which was like kind of unprecedented. And even many in the West were kind of confused because they, they, some of them were not sure like whether we should include like former Soviet <laughs> republics or not. So it was just a very unique time and place in history and they didn't have any um, uh, love for them. Uh, also, one more thing you have to remember, like Poland, Hungary and Czechoslovakia. So they were not only implementing reforms, which was one of a necessity to join NATO, but also remember like in 1956, they had the Hungarian revolution and in uh, Czechoslovakia, I think in 1960, there was an uprising which was brutally crushed by the Russians. So they had no love lost for the Russians. So when the time came, I mean, they wanted to throw their lot with the Western European nations and uh, get out from the Russian sphere of influence. So many of these nations were eager to join the NATO. I mean, at first, many even in the West, even in the US administration back then, they were like wary of uh, getting these people in because they were not sure like whether it would make sense. And obviously the question of Russian get, Russia getting upset, but even they were wary, but eventually, so it wasn't like NATO was, uh, I mean, some people came, was just wanting them to come along. I mean, obviously, if they came along, they didn't mind it. But uh, many of these countries also wanted to get from the, under the Russian shadow. So they were like super eager to join NATO. And obviously, the unique place in history, as you very well described, uh, helped them along. So now we came to the, like how the Baltics and the everyone joined. Now we come up to Ukraine, now where it gets uh, like a complex. Now, Ukraine in 1994 was one, I think, was one of the largest uh, country to have nuclear weapons on its, on its soil. Now, in the Budapest Memorandum, basically, they gave up their nuclear arms uh, in exchange for, like, uh, Russia to respect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Now, there are, I mean, you can see there are, like, countless examples of people who are well-versed in foreign policy international relations who had warned about ukraine being a red line for russia i mean russia i think in like the early 2000s was uh i mean it was also overshadowed by the events in 9-11 and the counter-terrorism so and russia not being as strong they were i think not too happy but they were not too opposed also to the baltics joining it but after that i think they drew a red line in the sand that any more expansion is not going to happen especially if it constitutes the former Soviet republics. So let's go through a few examples. I mean, George Kinnan, who has been called one of the greatest foreign policy strategists, said in as far back as 1998 that NATO expansion would be a tragic mistake that ought to provoke a bad reaction from Russia. Henry Kissinger, like former Secretary of State, well-known in all police, international policy circles, said that to Russia, Ukraine, can never just be a foreign country and then the West needs a policy that is aimed at reconciliation. He also was adamant that Ukraine should not join NATO. Uh, John Matlock, former US ambassador to the Soviet Union between 87 and 91, born in 1997, that NATO expansion was the most profound strategic blunder. Uh, I mean, in a chain of events that could pro produce the most, uh, the most serious security threat since the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, Bill Clinton's uh, own sec Defense Secretary William Perry in his memoir said that uh, the, the, the rupture in relations to Russia, uh, I mean, the NATO enlargement could cause a rupture in the relations with Russia. And uh, he was so opposed to it in the strength of my conviction, he also considered resigning. Um, 
I mean, Stephen Cohen, a famed scholar of Russian studies, warned in 2014 that if we move NATO forwards towards Russia's borders, it's obviously going to militarize the situation and Russia will not back off because this is an existential threat for them. Uh, in, his, in her memoir, Madeleine Albright, who was a secretary of student at Bill Clinton, concedes that uh, Russian Boris president then Boris Yeltsin and his countrymen were strongly opposed to enlargement seeing it as a strategy for exploiting their vulnerability and move, moving Europe's dividing line to the east, leaving them isolated. Uh, Strobe Talbot, uh, the Deputy Secretary of State, similarly described the Russian attitude that many Russians see NATO as a vestige of the Cold War inherently directed at the country. They pointed that they, since they have disbanded the Warsaw Pact, their military alliance, why not the West should do the same? It was an excellent question that neither the Clinton administration or the successors could say, like, you know, hey, if the Warsaw Pact is gone, why do we need a, a NATO alliance? But I mean, many of the smaller, I mean, and this is my point, like many of the NATO smaller countries, I mean, they had seen a lot of war in like in the two world wars, and they were subdued by like a larger power, be it Germany or Russia. So they always wanted a secure military alliance where any attack attack on them would be thing. But but for Russia, who's a larger power, they would probably not see that this angle. I mean, Moscow's patience was also uh, as the years went on, like it, NATO's ever expansion like was wearing thin. I mean, famously, like around 15 years ago, exactly to the I mean the month like March 2007, Putin addressed the annual Munich Security Conference where he said, and I quote. NATO has put its frontline forces on our borders. Uh, Putin complained NATO expansion represents a serious provocation that reduces the level of mutual trust. And we have the right to ask against whom is this expansion intended? And what happened to the assurances that our Western partners made after the dissolution of the Western Pact? So, I mean, there are like countless examples. I mean, even like... Uh, uh, Secretary of State Robert Gates, sorry, Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, uh, who served both under George Bush and Barack Obama, stated that the relationship with Russia was badly mismanaged after George H.W. Bush left office in 1993. And uh, in an implicit rebuke to the, the younger Bush, Gates asserted that trying to bring Georgia and Ukraine to NATO was truly overreaching. The move he contended was a case of recklessly ignoring what the Russians considered their own vital national interests. I mean, even Russian President Boris Yeltsin had made an opposition to uh, expansion uh, in, 19, in a 1995 speech. He said that those who insist on an expansion of NATO are making a major political mistake. The flames of war could burst out across the whole of Europe, uh, he said. So, I mean, I mean, we can go on like it would there are like countless examples when some people did see that maybe there would be a point at which Russia would say, okay, enough with the expansion and we would not want it to go uh, any more uh, eastward, you know, Kishore. Right. So uh, it's kind of obvious that uh, Putin also showed quite a bit of restraint right from uh, uh, the time when the Baltic states joined NATO and uh, also the uh, the uh, the velvet revolution countries like Czechoslovakia, um, Hungary, they all joined NATO. So uh, somehow uh, it looked like uh, Putin uh, ignored all these, and somehow Ukraine was the actual red line for uh, Putin and uh, Russia. 
Okay, so having said this, we now have to look at the 2008 Bucharest NATO summit and uh, Ukraine's path to possible membership. The then President uh, Bush, he strongly supported Ukraine and Georgia becoming NATO action plan members. However, this was opposed by uh, United Kingdom, France and Germany. The British uh, argument was that although there is full support for both Ukraine and Georgia, the question of uh, when they should join uh, should remain in the balance. The German Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, and the French uh, President Nicolas Sarkozy also were of the same opinion. The NATO alliance did not offer a membership action plan to Georgia or Ukraine, largely due to the opposition of Germany and France. But somehow they pledged to review the decision in December 2008. Now, even though Georgia was not offered uh, MAP, uh, it, it welcomed the decision and said the decision to accept that we are going forward to an adhesion to NATO was taken and we consider this as a historic success. So uh, half a step forward itself was quite, uh, uh, it, it made uh, Georgia happy. In fact, the summit declaration stated, NATO's door, I quote, NATO's door will remain open to European democracies, willing and able to assume the responsibilities and obligations of membership in accordance with Article 10 of the Washington Treaty. We reiterate that decisions on enlargement of uh, enlargement are for NATO itself to make. NATO welcomes Ukraine's and Georgia's Euro-Atlantic aspirations for membership in NATO. We agreed today that these countries will become members of NATO. Both nations have made valuable contributions to alliance operations. We welcome the democratic reforms in Ukraine and Georgia and look forward to free and fair parliamentary elections in Georgia in May. MAP, the Membership Access plan, Action Plan, is the next step for Ukraine and Georgia on their direct way to membership. Today, we make clear that we support these countries' applications for MAP." Unquote. So, it was quite obvious that uh, both, uh, both uh, Ukraine and uh, Georgia were well on their way uh, f uh, well on their way to uh, full-fledged NATO membership, if not today, at least in a decade or two decades. Now, as all this was happening, there was a general perception in Ukraine, uh, which kind of changed to pro-EU and pro-NATO uh, in the second half of 2000s. The, the then Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, he was a kind of a dubious character. In 2004, when he ran for presidency uh, in the runoff elections, there were allegations of fraud during the runoff against his rival. Now, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, after a series of uh, street protests, uh, dubbed as the Orange Revolution, uh, the voting had to be done, and in the second time around, uh, Yushchenko was declared as the winner. So Viktor Yanukovych was kind of, he was almost at the cusp of, of uh, power, but had to back off at the last minute. 
Now he bid her time and ran again for presidency, uh, winning fairly in the next election in 2010. After the election in 2010, he used patronage and other instruments of state power in a flagrant fashion to the advantage of his own political party. That high-handed behavior and legendary corruption alienated large portions of Ukraine's population. As the Ukrainian economy languished and fell farther and farther behind those of Poland and other East European neighbors that had implemented significant market-oriented reforms, public anger at Viktor Yanukovych mounted. When he eventually rejected the U European Union's terms for an association agreement in late 2013 in favor of a Russian offer, angry demonstrations filled Kiev's independence square, known as the Maidan, as well as, uh, the, as, well as other uh, cities and towns within uh, Ukraine. Now, at this point, Senator John McCain, uh, the senior-ranking Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee, he went to Kiev to show solidarity with the Euromaidan activists. Uh, John McCain dined with opposition leaders. So this was kind of a uh, this was kind of a uh, direct uh, uh, meddling into the protests that were being seen in uh, Ukraine at that point. Uh, Victoria Newland, the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, uh, also said that while the uh, while the political crisis deepened, uh, they also became involved in favoring the anti-Yanukovych demonstrators. Uh, Victoria Newland noted in a speech to the U.S.-Ukraine Foundation uh, in December 2013 that she had traveled to Ukraine three times in the week following the start of the demonstration. Visiting the Maidan on December 5, she handed out cookies to demonstrators and expressed support for their cause. So all this was uh, quite in the open and the Russian intelligence intercepted and leaked to the international media a Newland telephone call in which she and the US ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Piat, discussing in detail their preferences for specific personnel in a post-Yanukovych government. The US favored candidates included Arseniy Yatsenyuk, the man who became prime minister once Yanukovych was ousted from power. Now, in the telephone call, Victoria Newland stated enthusiastically that Yatsenyuk is the guy who would do the best job. It was startling to have a diplomatic representative of a foreign country and a country that routinely touts the need to respect uh, democratic processes and the sovereignty of other nations to be scheming about removing an elected government and replacing it with officials meriting U.S. approval. Mohal? Yeah, so I think this is like a very fascinating part that, um, like, I mean, just imagine if you take an example with India, let's say if there were like protests were happening against the U then UPA government in Ram Leela Maidan in 2011. I mean, imagine if a U.S. senator lands up in India and he says he, he throws his uh, with like Anahazar and all the people who are protesting, I mean, to create a huge outcry in India, I mean, or let's say if you take like the what uh, Victoria Newland, let's say if an assistant secretary 
uh, today like is like caught on tape discussing like who will be the best opposition leader uh, like to after Modi. I mean, it would just generate an enormous amount of backlash. So a lot of people, I mean, including like Putin and Russians were not too pleased. I mean, Yanukovych had his like faults and whatever uh, things he, he mismanaged and he didn't respect the will of the people who wanted to join the EU, but also the the dealings that the US people had just, I think it just increased the uh, animosity that Putin had for the West who thought that they were actively interfering in uh, Ukraine, which he considered in his sphere of influence. Kishore? Agree, agree, yeah. So it was quite obvious that this issue of whether Ukraine should join NATO or not, ignoring uh, Russian concerns, had now become a political uh, debate within uh, Ukraine. Now, uh, the candidate during uh, the 2010 presidential election and uh, Party of Regions leader Viktor Yanukovych stated during the campaign that the current level of Ukraine's cooperation with NATO was sufficient and that the question of country's accession to the NATO alliance was therefore not urgent. Uh, once he was chosen and once he got elected and once he became the president, he kept repeating that Ukraine's relations with NATO were currently well-defined and that there was no question of Ukraine joining NATO. He kept repeating that the issue of Ukrainian membership of NATO might emerge at some point, but we will not see it in the immediate future. So uh, it was like Viktor Yanukovych kept uh, kicking the football uh, farther and farther into the future and hoping that he would never have to take uh, the uh, difficult decision. However, once the protests erupted and he was forced to flee uh, to Russia uh, in exile in December 2014, the Ukrainian parliament renounced Ukraine's non-aligned status and thus was harshly condemned by Russia. The new law stated that Ukraine's previous non-aligned status proved to be ineffective in guaranteeing Ukraine's security and protecting the country from external aggression and pressure, and also aims to deepen Ukrainian cooperation with NATO in order to achieve the criteria which are required for membership in the alliance. So by uh, pretty much the end of 2014, uh, 29 December 2014, Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko uh, vowed to hold a referendum on joining NATO. Now, uh, that's how uh, things kept uh, taking turn for the worse. And by uh, 2017 June, uh, Ukraine's uh, leader Verkhovna Rada uh, passed a law making integration with NATO a foreign policy priority. And in, and in July 2017, Petro Poroshenko announced that he would seek the opening of negotiations on a membership action plan with NATO. And in the same month, again, President Poroshenko began proposing a patronage system tying individual regions with European states. And by March of 2018, NATO added Ukraine to the list of NATO aspiring members, which, which at that time also included Bosnia and Herzegovina and Georgia. And by 2020 June, uh, while the world was uh, 
in the in the grasp of uh, covid lockdown ukraine joined nato's enhanced opportunity partner interoper interoperability program according to a official nato statement the new status does not prejudge any decisions on nato membership so it's quite obvious that step by step step by step ukraine was getting closer and closer to a nato membership now by september 2020 the ukrainian president uh, uh, volodymyr zelensky uh, there were there were elections and uh, zelensky was now the new president he approved ukraine's new national security strategy which provided for the development of the distinctive partnership with nato with the aim of membership in nato itself and by october 2020 during a meeting with uh, prime minister boris johnson in london president zelensky stated that ukraine needed a nato membership action plan as nato membership will continue will uh, will contribute to ukraine's security and defense mohal yeah so i think uh, especially after uh, the then president yanukovych uh, in the protest forced him to flee to russia i think what uh, russia said like that uh, they saw the interference from the western side in ukraine and uh, he forcibly annexed crimea which was like loudly condemned by i think in then russia was also kicked out of the g8 back then which is now a g7 they were not like very too harsh sanctions but like some of the individuals were uh, sanctioned back then so i mean there was uh, i think putin in his mind thought like maybe with nato if ukraine will join nato the the sevastopol the the black sea fleet i mean russia did have like uh, soldiers as per an agreement uh, put on ukraine soil in crimea with the black sea fleet and he thought that it would come under some uh, danger so he went ahead and annexed crimea which was like loudly condemned with by all countries in the world hmm. now 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 what i wanted to say like is that the nato situation of with ukraine i mean it just left it hanging too for a very long time i mean russian so and the russia was ex- able to express that one so earlier as you say in bucharest in 2008 they said oh you can join us but they didn't even put them on a membership action plan which which was weird that until 2020 for like 12 years you would you would want a member but not even put him on a membership action plan so the the europeans were kind of divi- divided and then on the other hand they were not able to arm the the ukrainians so much that they can deter a russian invasion so i mean you know as in hindi we have that saying like you know na dhobi ka na ghat ka situation i think that was exactly what nato did they neither said that okay you are welcome to join let's put you on a membership action plan and you can join in let's say years a certain number of years while you also don't give them a security guarantee and this is where russia could exploit it to invade it to make sure that it remains in their sphere of influence also one of the things sets this apart from the other nato members in eastern europe was that the some of the as i said before like see in hungary and czechoslovakia they had bitter memories of the 1956 prague spring and 68 revolt being crushed by the soviet union so they had no love loss for russia even when i read up like during their accession to nato there was very little public opposition while in ukraine it's different right i mean there is a western part of ukraine which is very pro eu which is always wanted to go towards eu and nato while the eastern part the donbas region especially like they are like russian speakers and they don't have that much affinity so you have the european ambiguance 
you don't put ukraine on a nato membership action plan to join you uh left them hanging for so many years you don't arm them enough so all, everything combined together and then you have like political divisions within ukraine i mean even if you think of it like up till 2008 maybe they were joining ukraine then you have yanukovych from 2010 to 14 where they, they said he doesn't want to join ukraine so there's political division there's not even a consensus in the ukraine whether they want to join nato or not so all these factors combine to create the perfect storm where they could neither join and they were just left hanging for a very long time i think that's what explains i mean uh like the russian angle the european angle the nato angle the ukraine angle i mean everything combined to create this crisis at the moment kishore perfect perfect okay so that kind of explains how complex the entire situation is and how uh, uh, it's quite obvious that both sides are uh, are guilty of uh, uh, acts of commission and acts of omission anyway now we'll come back to the indian uh, perspective and we'll try to see how um, indians have been doing a tight rope walk and uh, we'll also have to look at how uh, the indians have chosen the path that they have uh, eventually taken now remember if you have uh, listened to us in our previous episodes we have uh, we have mentioned about the the law that uh, the us senate has passed which is actually called catha uh, countering american adversaries through sanctions act which essentially is an act a law uh, to counter american adversaries like russia like china through sanctions and not only would it impose sanctions on russia or china it would also impose sanctions on anybody uh, having any kind of transactions with uh, russia so for example if india has any uh, transactions uh, being done with russia then through law through the catha law uh, uh, american um, government is well within their right to impose sanctions even on a country like india so that are the kind of uh, Uh, dichotomy that um, india faces the people like uh, uh, i mean countries like india face especially because uh, uh, india has bought the um, the air defense system called the s400 which again we have talked in one of our previous episodes wherein uh, india tried evaluating quite a uh, quite a few potential air defense systems and eventually chose s400 over over other options uh, from the us like thad like patriot so on and so forth and that kind of left the americans red faced because they uh, they were kind of arm twisting indians to go ahead and procure the patriot missiles or thad missiles and uh, eventually indians did not budge and uh, they purchased the s400 uh, air defense system so Uh, this was kind of the uh, the latest uh, round of uh, uh, i mean uh, ill ill will between the us and uh, india uh, however having said that uh, the indo indo russian relations uh, have been on for a long long time ever since india became independent so obviously india has a very good reason as to why it does not want to alienate the russians 
After all, another problem is that the U.S. tries to arm twist, not to buy, uh, not to buy arms and ammunition from Russia, but the U.S. itself refuses to sell to India any top-of-the-line equipment themselves. So the F-35 or uh, the submarine, uh, the nuclear submarines, I think all of them are off the shelf when it comes to any kind of uh, defense deal that the U.S wants India to enter uh, with them. So that's the kind of uh, dichotomy that India keeps facing. Now, uh, having said that, the Indian leadership itself has been in constant touch with both the Russian and Ukrainian leaderships. India has now, uh, after having pretty much evicted most of its uh, students, has now announced an aid package for Ukraine. Again, it has to be remembered that vast majority of Indian military hardware is of Russian origin. Again, we have spoken about it in our uh, previous episodes, roughly about 60 to uh, 70 percent. Now, this large amount of equipment implies that you will obviously need a lot of spares or ammunition, again, to be imported from Russia on a regular basis. In fact, as per one report in Economic Times, as per one estimate, the annual outgo for spares and parts from Russia for the armed forces in itself is in excess of around $500 million. So uh, that, uh, that's how, uh, like how India did with the Ira Iranians when Iran itself was uh, trying to uh, struggle, uh, when Iran itself was struggling with uh, sanctions imposed on them. India, India entered into an agreement directly with Iran to have a direct real to rupee transaction, similar to how we are now talking about a ruble to rupee transaction. And this way, it, India uh, entered into trade with Iran by assigning certain banks, which did not have so much of exposure to the Western banking system. And I think India would want to repeat the same process again by earmarking a few Indian banks, which do not have so much of exposure to Western banking system, to have some kind of a direct ruble to rupee transaction. But I think having said all that, the biggest takeaway for any India watcher would be India's reluctance to, pub to publicly admonish Russia. As much as uh, India would uh, claim that uh, uh, the territorial integrity of uh, Ukraine has to be respected. India pretty much refuses to not only toe the Western line in voting against Russia in the United Nations, but also to announce imposition of harsh uh, sanctions. Mohan? Uh, so, yeah, that's about the... Yeah, uh, uh, yeah I mean... Uh... ...the Indians are doing. Now, mm -hmm. do you want to add Yeah, actually, anything? let me... Yeah, I want to add here. So, a couple of points here. I mean, you very well brought up the reliance on military hardware. Now, some people say, like, okay, why can't we use Western weapons? Now, even if Western weapons, the deals have signed, it takes years and years for them to come over. So, we will have to rely on Russian hardware for the near future, for sure. Um, so, we have to get those spares. Otherwise, we'll be stuck, especially when we have a situation at the LAC with China. We cannot afford to uh, not have those uh, weapons come in. Uh, regarding like the Russian military also, I mean, you have to remember that certain things like leasing a nuclear submarine, even high-tech, even stuff, even like the, uh, the Americans don't give it to us. 
So it's not like you, you, India is going to break uh, relations with Russia. I mean, that's, that relates to the strategic uh, autonomy that India has been uh, practicing for a very long time. And also regarding like, uh, I mean, there has been some uh, reluctance from India and many Western commentators and even like, uh, like Prime Minister Modi's critics in India have been saying, oh, why is uh, India not criticizing uh, Modi? I mean, Modi is like Putin's best friend and he likes uh, autocratic leaders. That's why he's uh, very uh, uh, chummy with them and he doesn't want to care. But it's not that. See, even in 2014, when the previous government under Manmohan Singh was there, where then uh, National Security Advisor, I believe Shiv Shankar Mohan, right? Oh, sorry, I get his name wrong. Uh, yeah. Yes, you shouldn't come Sorry, Menon. I mean, when he was asked about the uh, Crimean annexation, I mean, he may, he didn't give a straightforward answer that he uh, um, uh, is opposed to it. I mean, sort of. I mean, he said like it, the Russian interests also have to be in balance. So it's not a political thing that Modi is not speaking out because it's like an old political practice. Even the previous government during the Crimean annexation didn't uh, speak out as vocally because India does have its. Uh, uh, interest it needs to balance plus also a lot of students were stuck initially so you couldn't uh, trying to uh, get any anger anybody uh, regarding it okay so uh, that kind of uh, elaborates on the Indian uh, angle now uh, Mohal you have any closing thoughts yeah so see like Putin, I mean, we said like he might have some grievances like regarding the NATO expansion and he wanted to retain his sphere of influence. Now, obviously, uh, smashing a country to pieces is not the right way to do it. I mean, he might have his grievances, but starting a war where so many innocent lives uh, are lost. I mean, today, like Ukraine reported that around 1300 soldiers. I mean, Zelensky said that might have lost their lives. So it's not very looked upon well. I mean, anytime in the post-World War II global order, when you arbitrarily change international boundaries or invade other nations, it's frowned upon or looked up at very badly. So uh, it's not a doesn't look good. I mean, as you said earlier, Putin has lost a lot of world support by doing this, by starting an unprovoked war, uh, which uh, I don't think anybody in the world is almost like supporting. We might might people might understand the reasons he did it, but the loss of life and the refugee crisis and everything has uh, created a lot of anger against him. Now, Putin might have miscalculated the economic backlash from the West. I mean, in 2014, when he had the annex Crimea, I mean, the sanctions were like kind of a slap on the wrist. So he thought, you know what, I'll get away again with it. Also, the, uh, the US failure, I mean, um, in Afghanistan and also you might think that there was a decline in the uh, US relative power might have thought, oh, this was the right time to pounce upon Ukraine. Now, what is Putin's endgame is, I mean, nobody really knows. I mean, he can, after the fall of Kiev, in theory, install a friendly government with somebody like a Yanukovych where he could withdraw and then say, you know what, I achieved my game. I achieved my aim. Like I have a pro-Western Ukrainian uh, government who will like, you know, not uh, to the Westland and join NATO. Now, trying to cap, because I mean, if you think about the alternative, trying to capture the whole of country as big as Ukraine is going to be, at, and especially given the current progress, it's going to be very slow and difficult. And then the longer this goes on, the probability of turning into a long bloody insurgency also increases. I mean, at this point, I would say like the most probable outcome is like a long bloody insurgency uh, in Ukraine. I mean, I mean, Putin will be looking for an off-ramp 
I mean, they did have some discussions with Zelensky, but I don't think they can come up to a conclusion. I mean, in theory, Zelensky, I mean, Biden might just tell him not to accept any peace deal where, let's say, Russia, in theory, gets a pledge from Ukraine not to join NATO. That's been his whole thing all along that, you know, we want Ukraine to not join NATO. But I mean, Biden could say, like, you know, Zelensky don't accept the offer because that would set a bad precedent for the future where, like, any aspiring member in the NATO alliance, let's say a Moldova in the future, which is neither part of NATO nor part of any other alliance, would be invaded by a rival great power just to force their hand to not join the rival alliance. I mean, it would just be a bad precedent. Now, the invasion on the European side has galvanized NATO and EU like never before in the past 10-15 years. I mean, there was a lot of divisions within EU. You had the Brexit and even the NATO members who couldn't agree upon, I mean, Trump did upbraid them quite harshly for not spending enough on defense now, which they have finally woken up to doing, you know, like spending more on defense. Now, Ukraine is like a, is a complex situation, right? I mean, on the Western part, you have pro-EU sympathies and they have anger at Russia, which would have just grown exponentially after they got invaded. So they were never going to expect accept a de facto Russian control. Now, let's say even if Kiev falls, which it could be given the large amount of Russian forces surrounding it, and even if a pro-Russian leader is installed, I mean, half the country to the West is not bound to accept him as a legitimate leader. So any long-drawn insurgency is not going to be good. I mean, it will just shatter the, the Ukrainian state, like, you know, uh, I mean, it, it just runs the risk of becoming a failed nation in the long run. But also, it also brings about the security dimensions and implications for Europe and the rest of the world. Now, I mean, firstly, an estimated 2.5 million refugees have fled Ukraine to neighboring countries like Poland, Romania, and Hungary. Now, many of these nations already had, over the last maybe few years, dealing with a huge influx of refugees from Syria, Turkey, Afghanistan, etc. So the additional burden is going to put even more pressure on their finances, especially when we're coming out of an economic recession post-corona pandemic. Also, the issue of foreign fighters, right? I mean, in, there are like thousands of foreign fighters have streamed towards Ukraine to fight on their behalf. I mean, which is a noble cause for the Ukrainians who are getting invaded by a larger power. But see, like this risk of becoming a breeding ground for extremism as seen in different parts of the world. I mean, you have Afghanistan and Syria and lot of so many cases. I mean, Ukraine has been practically flooded with all kinds of anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles to help them fight the Russians. Now, due to the crisis, they've been handed out liberally to whoever wants to like pick up a fight with Russians. But there remains a risk that some of these weapons could end up in the wrong hands via black market, which will have like a security implications in the future. I mean, they could be, God forbid, like target used to target a civil civilian airliner in the future. I mean, you know, so there they could be a misuse. I mean, I remember that after 9-11, like, I mean, uh, US was actively paying, I think like 10 or $50,000 to actively procure all the stingers that they'd given the Mujahideen in the uh, Soviet invasion day. So they didn't want their airplanes to get down. So they had to go and buy back all of them at a steep price, you know. So, I mean, this is like what, I mean, the world uh, has thrown the kitchen sink in terms of, uh, I mean, moving on to the, so the sanctions part of it. The world has thrown uh, the kitchen sink in terms of sanctions against Putin to bring him down, which might not bring him down. But like, if you think of the angle of China, I mean, Xi's is getting a free look at the playbook. I mean, he's getting all the trick plays, all the stuff that they would do. Like, let's say even if 
she would she would do make even a move on taiwan he just knows how to foolproof all his sanctions because he has been given the practically the whole playbook right i mean that was some people say like you know you should not have bared the whole playbook for china because now china knows exactly what to do to prevent any kind of sanctions against it for uh, it, let's say if it goes for taiwan in the future you know now coming to the last point like the indian angle i think the lesson for conflict of india has been self dependence in weapons tech now because the threat of weapons or spares being slowed down or stopped in the due to sanctions now the government and prime minister modi has like pushed for atmanirbharta or self reliance in defense manufacture i think which should get a necessary philip given the trouble that we could have over the next few years procuring any kind of russian equipment or uh, supplies and uh, also the ukraine i think delivers one more important ex uh, example for us in foreign policy international relations now ukraine i mean as this as the nadobika nagatka like never got any explicit security guarantees that okay if russia invades we will come fight for you or nor they entered any military alliance so the lesson for india is like if push comes to shove against so let's say a bigger power like or hegemon like china we will be practically on our own i mean nobody is going to come fight for us i mean you can't have like russia us troops even if they support india fighting for us on the lac for example i mean we have to fight our own battles that's for sure and given our culture of strategic autonomy no matter who is in power made be modi or Uh, a Congress government or a third part, third front. Nobody. We are never going to sign an explicit military alliance with the uh, Americans, where in case of attack they would come and help us out. So we have to fight on our own. I think that's a given, and this just highlights that point uh, one more time that we have to rely on ourselves to uh, stand up to a larger power such as uh, China. Kishor. great points uh, mohan now from my perspective uh, my closing comments would be that for the us also this is a needless conflict that they are getting into at the back of the longest war that they have fought the afghan retreat was a huge embarrassment for the us and also for their allies also they haven't stood up to their own promise of rehabilitating all afghan contractors and other supporters who are working with the us in afghanistan about this kind of a juncture the us making any tall promises about how they will stand shoulder to shoulder with the with the ukrainian people will be met with lots of uh, suspicion also it is important to understand that this is a period of geopolitical churn iran is being wooed by the us and its uh, allies to tackle inflationary concerns by allowing iranian crude oil into the global uh, markets hoping that inflation can be handled decisively however every such attempt by the us is being met with apprehension by uh, regional powers like saudi arabia and the united arab emirates the us hopes that the iranian oil can act as a direct substitute to the sanctioned russian crude oil now uh, along with this uh the uh, the americans uh, stated aim was to strengthen their presence in the indo-pacific uh, arena indo-pacific uh, theater now any kind of distraction that happens in in uh, europe in ukraine 
is actually uh, a major uh, distraction for them simply because they cannot focus on uh, Indo-Pacific region and that gives the Chinese enough time uh, for them to grow stronger and to strategize uh, as much as they want in uh, either taking up uh, uh, Taiwan or uh, in um, getting into any other mischief that they want to get into. So this kind of a distraction does not bode well for any, uh, any nation within the Indo-Pacific uh, theater. Uh, so these are the kind of uh, concerns that uh, throw up uh, as part of the Russian invasion uh, of uh, Ukraine right now. Now, uh, before we end this episode, again, we reiterate that our hearts and prayers are with the Ukrainian people who are now facing a, a Herculean uh, crisis. Hopefully, there will be a, a quick end to this crisis and uh, the Ukrainians can get back to rebuilding their nation. Now, uh, having said this, I think we'll have to move on to our uh, recommendations. And uh, Mohal, uh, you have your recommendation for the week? Yeah, so I listened to this excellent Orion Talks podcast where Paul Post, uh, he elaborates on his uh, agreement with John Mersheimer's uh, arguments regarding West responsibility and the NATO expansion in the crisis and his agreements and both his agreements and disagreements regarding uh, like whether the West was responsible for this crisis and whether Russia was responsible. I think he gives a very balanced take where it's kind of mixed bag where little bit of blame on both sides. Obviously, I want to state again, like Russia invading that, uh, the the war is obviously on, uh, responsibility lies with Russia, but from a historical perspective, who uh, gets more of the blame? And it's, I think it's kind of a mixed bag. It's neither here nor there. So Kishore, what's your recommendation for this week? Okay, yeah. My recommendation is an article written in the Indian Express by a person named uh, D.B. Venkatesh Verma, uh, titled Harsh Lessons from the Ukraine Crisis. In fact, he, he tells that the confront, confrontation will drag the U.S. down into a quagmire and what starts in Europe will not stay in Europe. So he kind of uh, uh, is of the opinion that this might actually spill over far beyond the boundaries of Europe and uh, uh, India uh, and uh, the US might have to be ready for that kind of a, uh, expanded uh, theater. Having said that, uh, there are uh, equal concerns of uh, China's role in all this and that is where the, the US might suddenly find its uh, hands full in dealing with both Russia and China. So that will be my recommendation for uh, this week. Okay, so uh, as we wind up, uh, uh, there is a note for the uh, for the listeners as well. So to continue hearing uh, about such interesting topics, we would urge you to subscribe to our channel India Rising wherever you are listening to us. If you are listening to us on YouTube, do press the bell icon to get notifications about new episodes. If you have not left us a review, we urge you to do so as it helps other listeners like you in finding us. We would also like to hear from you if you have any suggestions on topics that you would like us to cover. Do remember that these topics should be directly related to Indian foreign policy. Until the next time, this is Mohal and Kishore signing off. Mm-hmm.